Would you turn to the book of Acts? We're going to be returning after nearly a year to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12, picking it up where we left off nearly a year ago to the day. Acts chapter 12. Acts, as you may recall, is the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to everyone, everywhere. And just in case you've been following along the story of Acts, to get you up to speed, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, really does mean everyone. Back in Acts chapter 8, we see the good news going to the hated Samaritans. Then we see the good news on the move, on the road, to an Ethiopian eunuch. This marginalized minority, though he belonged to the ruling class, we see an Ethiopian other receiving good news and being baptized into this kingdom family. Just to drive the point home further in Acts chapter 9, we see a persecutor, Saul, jailing and murdering Christians. He gets struck down, blinded by the light. And he comes to Jesus as a result. So Luke really does mean everyone. And just in case we're still not getting it, Acts chapter 10, my favorite chapter of the whole book of Acts, we see the good news on the move connecting a bridge between Peter, a Jewish peasant fisherman, with a Roman soldier and leader. And the Holy Spirit falls upon this Roman soldier and his whole household. And we see that truly the good news is on the move to everyone. And Luke does mean everyone, everywhere. Well, because of all this rabble-rousing, they've turned the world upside down. And we're going to see more persecution. Because what we see in the book of Acts is this rhythm of this kingdom community turning others into brothers and strangers into family. And then we see this reaction against them, this persecution against them. And they respond to it, as we see this evening, with power and prayer. But before we get back into Acts chapter 12, I want to remind you, and in case you were trying to join us online, we had some technical issues But last week, we had a lament service in the wake of the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo. We had a lament service to pray, to hold space, and to grieve, and to process, and to do that with God and each other, to get it all out, and to try and connect with God in the darkness. And you saw this sentiment creeping up online throughout, that we need more than just thoughts and prayers, and they're right. We need more than just thoughts and prayers, but I think lament services and for churches and God's people, I want to be clear that we do need more than thoughts and prayers to solve issues of gun violence and racism Absolutely. We need more than thoughts and prayers, but listen, we certainly don't need less. Intercession and action are the kingdom activities 
of Jesus' followers. We need to be people that are demonstrating the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven in our neighborhoods, family, and world. But we also come back to the face of God and beg him and plead for our neighbor and those on the margins. And we intercede in prayer as well. And the thing we learn, and as we've seen in the events of the last couple weeks, is we certainly don't always get what we want when we want it. If you have ever prayed, you know this to be true. You don't always get what you want. You don't always get what you ask for, and you certainly don't get it when you want. But I want to say that every prayer pushes back, whether by one quarter inch or one quarter mile, every prayer prayed in the strong name of Jesus pushes back darkness and is one invitation, one knock on the door for more of on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that it's not a wasted act. It's not just air bouncing off the ceiling. We need more than thoughts and prayers, but certainly not less. So we as God's people follow in a long line of brothers and sisters who have been mindful in remembering the pain and violence and suffering of our kingdom community in Uvalde, Buffalo, or way back in Jerusalem. And we think and hold space for them. Then we intercede for them. And then we get up filled with the Holy Spirit. And we go and live as kingdom citizens. Enacting love and justice and compassion in our lives. We need every prayer to push back darkness. And to invite more of heaven on earth. So in Acts chapter 12. They're grappling with violence and persecution again. And the church responds to violent suffering and struggle by standing alongside their persecuted brother in prayer. So that's where we pick up our story in this miraculous, wild story in Acts chapter 12. So it was about this time, a difficult drought time, that King Herod, different Herod from the Gospels, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the same James from the Gospels, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, leader in the church, one of the disciples, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he said, oh, you guys like that? Let me go get this other big fish leader in the church. And he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Big time in the Jewish calendar. Just like when Jesus was crucified. After arresting him, he put him in prison. Handing him over to be guarded by, count them, ready? Four squads of four soldiers each. Professor Toby, that's 16 guards, is that right? For one little old fisherman. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. 
So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was what? Earnestly praying to God for him. The first big idea out of four this evening about prayer and persecution is this. The church meets the world's power and persecution with prayer. That's simple, but it's worth saying and underlining and highlighting. This is a different Herod from the Gospels, but he's doing the same thing as his half-brother. Big Jewish festival. You guys like that? You guys like me persecuting this group of Christians? Let me take one of their leaders and kill them. Because worldly power only traffics and understands fear, force, and finances. We're seeing this in Russia. We want to evoke fear. We want to show force. And we want to try to funnel more finances to the few that hold on to the power. So they take James, the son of Zebedee, brother John, the disciple, the church leader, and you got to understand that I bet you that James prayed earnestly, but James was killed. We can't gloss over that, because if any of you have prayed, just like earlier I mentioned, you know you don't always get what you want when you want it. James learned this and paid with his life. But what happens when Peter gets arrested, just like I'm sure they did with James, the church in verse 5 does what? Earnestly prayed to God for him. The church meets persecution with prayer. If the world's power is about fear, force, and finances, the church's power is about love, prayer, and unity. We do this together, united. We do this in love, and we do this through prayer. And we do this not because we're powerful in our own right, but because God is powerful. That's why you don't end your prayers with, in Adam's name, amen. Do you know why we say, in Jesus' name? Because we know which power source, which cord we're connecting to. Through Jesus, we are asking and inviting in his strong name where his life, love, and grace, and mercy, and forgiveness, and healing, and power is in his name for his sake. Please, God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, because he's powerful and we know we aren't, that's why I'm praying. Because I can't heal myself in Jesus, God, would you heal me? Because I can't get unstuck through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you guide me? This is basic prayer 101. We pray because we know we are powerless, so we pray to get in touch with where the power is. And it's worth noting again these TNC mantras, we pray believing God can. Because I can't, I'm going to pray believing that maybe you can. And so often many of us grew up in churches where we always added that disclaimer, that asterisk, if it be your will. 
Even though James was put to death with the sword, the will of God is that no one would be put to death with the sword. And yet we live in a violent and volatile space. I know that the will of God is that children aren't gunned down. I don't have to consult the, the whole canon of scripture for this. And so we pray and we say, God, yet somehow we're still in this world that's broken and these things still happen, but we believe that you can move and intervene. And so we ask you, please, that you will let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And because people are still dying by the sword and because people are still getting sick, in some mystery we're entering in where God is holding all things together. And the reason we read Romans 8 during our scripture and prayer time is because it invokes and evokes the pain that Christians feel that say, we're facing death all day long. And then Paul says, hey, just so we're clear, can nakedness or danger or violence or sickness or heaven or hell or angels or demons, can anything truly ultimately separate you and pull you apart from the love of God, sword, sickness, or otherwise? And he says an emphatic, no. And later on in Romans chapter 8, he says, matter of fact, even sickness and sword doesn't get the last word. He's working all things, bending all things back toward goodness, and he'll make it up to us at the end, especially those fourth graders in Uvalde. And we grieve, and we are in turmoil and pain, and we don't get it, so we lament, and we scream at God, and we say, why? How long? But we always pray, believing that God can do something and be near to the brokenhearted and heal and love and hold them in his arms and in his embrace. And then we ask that he will. And we trust that God loves us no matter what, when it's not what we want or when we want. When it looks like James. Well, James gets killed and the church grieves it. But then when Peter gets put in prison, they verse five it. We resolve to involve God again, no matter how ugly, no matter how scared we are, no matter how painful, because we are powerless, so we go to where the power is. So the church goes back to God and says, not again, God, help Peter. We need Peter. We need you, and we believe that you can free him. We're asking that you will free him, and we trust that if he dies too, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Five to 800 years ago, some, uh, uh, um, a philosopher said, love is the physical structure of the universe. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, we believe and stake our life that God loves us and that God is bending all things toward renewal and recreation, even when we're in the valley of the shadow of, the de of death. So that's why we resolve to involve God in everything from a high fever and a toothache to persecution and pain and violence in our world. Understand that Herod will meet his end at the end of chapter 12. 
I'm not going to read it today, but I want you to look at it because you're going to see it's not there actually in the slides. I want you to look at it on your own time and you see this strange, mysterious statement where Herod elevates himself and tries to make himself something powerful. Because when you try to take down the leaders of a movement and you're getting people agreeing with you and saying yes to you, he starts to buy his own press. He has no need for God. He has no need to involve God. He elevates himself to God-like status. The crowd says, this is a God, not a man. And in some mysterious way, Herod dies. And I can't explain it. Luke doesn't try to explain too much of it. But it's a epilogue to Acts chapter 12 because the comedy of Acts chapter 12 is that the world imprisons people and tries to show that they are powerful and that they are something but at the end of the day God gets the final word. Herod is shown to be another crook and phony and Peter is going to walk out of that jail even though 16 guards are on his right and left. And I believe that Peter was able to walk out because his community was standing alongside one another on behalf of their brother, involving God, believing he can, asking he will, and trusting that God loves them no matter what. When I was 18 years old, my first tattoo on Walnut Street in Garland, I drive past it seriously every day, taking the girls to school or going to the rock. I got it on the inside of my uh, bicep here. And if um, it wasn't my first tattoo, I would have known better because it hurt. And it's a Latin phrase and it's Coram Deo. And about once every two or three months, someone will ask me what it means. And about once every three years, they'll say, did you go to Coram Deo Academy in Carrollton? Because it's the name of a private school somewhere in North Dallas. But what that phrase means, and I was so captivated with it when I was 18, was before the face of God. Before the face of God. And I put it there so that I might see it, so that I might remember it. But what I think is going on with this church community in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, earnestly praying to God for him, is that though they're separated from Peter, what they're doing in prayer as a people together is standing alongside Peter before the face of God. How would it change your prayer life this week? To play with that mental image in the imagination that God has given you. To name a person that is stuck in prison, literally or figuratively, and to hold them next to you before the face of God. This sick family member, this stuck relationship, this neighbor, or even this enemy. And as Christians, we're called to have no enemies. But an enemy is someone who would look at you and call you enemy. And so you bless them and you pray for them 
and you hold them alongside in your mind's eye and in your heart before the face of God. Coram Deo. This church involved God believing and trusting that God would do something with him. So, Peter's in jail. Verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. I wonder if that's where the rapper got his name. And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. I just read that. Can we just pause for a minute and think how crazy this is? An angel of the Lord, some messenger, came and nudged him and said, Hey, Peter, wake up. We're busting out of this joint. And the chains fall off, and there's literally two guards on the side of him. Acts is crazy. And somehow this is what's at work here. And I'm believing Luke. So the chains fall off of his wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Pause. This is why I believe Luke. Because This is in the story. It's like when Peter told me this, he kept saying, man, I thought it was a dream. I thought I was sleepwalking. There's no way this is happening. I went over there and I bumped the lampstand when I put on my shirt. And then I kind of was putting on my left sandal and I knocked into the wall. They never woke up. But I walked all the way out of prison. And the whole time I thought, this is a wild dream. This is what Peter is thinking. He's still thinking this as verse 10. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. At our last leader retreat, On the back end of that two-year wild COVID surge, I had this sense as I was looking on the other side of the fence at this property that there was all this wild brush and growth, and I started to feel this extreme sense of anxiety. Like I was on this manicured nice space, but just on the other side of this fence line was like all this wild growth. And I think I was kind of thinking metaphorically that, you know, I had all of this work in front of me. Okay, what do I need to do now? What do I got to rethink? What do I got to retool? How do we have to regroup? I had read this one tweet from this influential pastor that said, every church in America has to replant 
after COVID. And so I'm thinking, okay, what do we got? I got to replant. Okay, we're going to replant the church. Maybe there's a different name we can be now again. And I'm just sitting there thinking all of this as I'm looking literally at this wild brush. And I had this thought of like this trailblazer, Indiana Jones, taking a machete and taming the wilderness. And no sooner did this all well up that I had this sense of calm that said, sometimes you don't have to tame the wilderness. You don't have to climb the mountain or cross the sea when God just wants us to be led by him through it. I think the reason that came to me was because our Lectio Divina that morning was from the Exodus wilderness crossing. Do y'all remember that? And I had this sense of a frazzled and frantic people looking at Egyptians behind them and a sea in front of them. And instead of saying, okay, get out your shop vax, we got to drain this puppy. They were attentive long enough to get woke up, get your shoes on, and follow me. Whether it was through a sea or out of jail, if you are in a situation where you're tempted to get the machete and start weed whacking, can I just invite you to pause for a moment and ask God in prayer before the face of God, is this something that I got to trailblaze or is this something I just got to follow? Because sometimes we get so worked up with steps 8, 9, and 10 that God is tapping us on the shoulder and just telling us about step 1, 2, and 3. Wake up, get dressed, follow me. How does that work? I'll leave that to you to discern. But we learn it, we work it out by being attentive to God and having our community praying for us and helping to speak into this situation. So often we want to tame the wilderness, climb the mountain, or cross the sea when God just wants us to be led by Him through it. God, what is the next best step? And see if He does that. This was not Peter's escape as much as it was God's rescue. And sometimes in your life, you've got to know where the credit belongs. I think Peter, when he finally comes to in verse 11, is going to say, look what God did. Not, you'll never believe how I escaped 16 guards. <laughs> Prayer is the church's power. Not because we are powerful, but because God is powerful. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Let's round home with our story. Verse 11, Peter came to himself. <laughs> oh, now I know without a doubt that the who? The Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Peter gets really early that this was not his doing, this is God's doing, and that's a great place to be. You're out of your mind, they told her. We skipped ahead. In verse, maybe I didn't give it to you. So, let's back up. When, they, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. This is verse 12. 
also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance. They'd have this outer courtyard. And then a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. I love this. It's not on the screen, so look here. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind. This is on the screen, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Now, pause there. Is that weird to anybody? It's weird to me. You know, a lot of people talk about guardian angels, and there's really a scant little aside verses throughout the canon of Scripture. This is kind of one of them. It's kind of a folk um, idea that there's so many angels, maybe we've got some kind of looking for us. There's some weirdness with this phrase that it could mean they thought it was Peter's like spirit. Like maybe they were praying so much that he was having an out-of-body experience. They were so united. Maybe it was kind of like a guardian angel. I don't know why it would look like Peter or sound like Peter. The answer from your pastor's opinion is, I don't know. No one really knows. It's just there. And so we just move on, I think. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. This is a community who had been earnestly praying for Peter. This is also a community that had seen God healing, guiding, and moving throughout Acts. They had seen people speak in languages they never learned. They had seen lame people walk. They had seen all kinds of power and miracles. And yet, when an answer of their prayer literally knocks on the door, they say, oh, hush, Rhoda, get back over here and keep praying for Peter. Do we see the irony here? God has directly answered their prayer that they had been praying for together and for hours. And by the way, Peter had been broken out of jail before. And yet, when someone says, Peter's out of jail, he's right there. They say, hush, get over here and pray for Peter. My third big idea is don't miss or mistake the fingerprints of God on your situation. We get this idea that the disciples and the early church members were just superheroes or spiritual gurus. We get the idea that when we read the book of Acts that this stuff was happening every Tuesday. Do you understand that maybe this scene happened 15 years after Jesus ascended? Do you understand that, that Acts is a greatest hits from several thousand people's story over a few years? We get this idea that this happened every Tuesday. We get the idea that they're spiritual gurus and superheroes. But just for a moment, you need to be reminded again that they're ordinary people just like us trying to figure out the unfigure outable. I don't even know what it means that they said it must be his angel. Okay? So when we approach the story of Scripture, we need to remember that 
These are people grappling with the divine. And the Bible sounds the way it does because God let his kids write it. But God has also made himself known to us in our everyday experience and through the words of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so he has given us these fingerprints over your everyday life and in the pages of Scripture that we might be able to deduce the divine when we see him heal our friend and see him give our person that was anxious, needing peace. We look at those and we say, that's God That has God's fingerprints on it. And so you need to get in the habit of naming it early and often. Your kids will thank you when they grow up and you've normalized a God who's interactive and cares about their situation. And I love what Carla's mom was doing so often in her prayer journal. I think about this often. She would write out her prayer requests and when they would get answered, you know what she would do? You remember, yes, she would go back and circle them. And it was training her, noticing God's fingerprints. How often do we just send outgoing messages to God and we never stop and check again at which ones have been answered, which ones have been moved on? And I just want to remind us that these people in Acts, they miss it too, But what would it look like to start training yourself at the end of the day when you prayed that God would keep you safe or help you or, you know, bring you back home together in one piece? Maybe start by at the end of the day saying, hey, thanks for everything it took to get me back here today. And you start to recognize every little blessing like hot water and corgis. Amen, Barners? (laughs) Finally, As we come to the end of this, Peter calms them all down. He probably says, it's really me. I got a wild story to tell you. So Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord, not here's how I broke out, the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he had left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And this is another example of worldly power. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Surely they did this, not God. Surely one of them was responsible, not God. Because worldly power only knows force and fear and financial gain. And so we see in this tragicomic story how 16 men and political aspirations on a big holiday with everybody looking, we see how God comically just vacates this person. Why? So that he might go and tell others how the power of God has been on the move again. And then the good news can go again to everyone, everywhere. Our fourth and final big idea I want to leave you with is this. Someone in your life needs to hear that story of what God has done. How many of you have a that story? And you may not. The that story is that one time we prayed and begged God and he did it. He didn't 
every time, but he did that time. And it's not a fluke. And it's not us Christians just looking at the randomness of the universe and grasping on the one that makes us feel good. No, it's because I've seen every other little grace that also reminds me that he's with me when I need him. And so what happens when you tell someone that story of what God did this week or two years ago, the other people in your neighborhood group and the other people at the clothes closet and the other people at your neighborhood pool party, backyard hangout, when that person hears that, they start to go, oh man, if God worked like that, maybe he can work in this. And you start to normalize the everyday life that God interacts in because that's the only life you have to lead. We don't pray to get everything we want, but we do pray because we need God to work. So when we see God at work, name it. What story needs sharing in your life and who would be encouraged and blessed by hearing it? How many people in your neighborhood would be encouraged just to learn that your church got together and offered very little by way of answers in our lament service, but we just wanted to make space to cry out and get everything in, in our lives out before God? How many people in your neighborhood would be encouraged to hear that this pastor has no idea what some of the verses in the Bible means, but maybe we can figure it out and follow Jesus together? How many people in your neighborhood would be so encouraged just to have your attention and your presence sitting with them when they're anxious and afraid and need someone to listen to when everyone else in their life is just talking at them? How might you be the non-anxious presence of Christ in their midst this week? If to pray is to stand alongside your community, neighbors, and enemies before the face of God, I would encourage you to pay attention to the nudges in your life when that person comes to your mind. Maybe, just maybe, it's the Holy Spirit wanting you to catch a wave of heaven on earth and to enter into this space to intercede for that person. Years ago, someone that used to be connected to our church shared about how she was on a college missions team, and she was awakened in the middle of the night and just felt urged to pray for this other group in her ministry team that was overseas an eight hours time difference. She prayed for them, went back to sleep. Woke up, went about her day, and it wasn't until many days later that this other part of their college mission team returned back home that they began to, like Peter, tell them about this wild story that happened about seven or eight days ago. I don't remember the exact time frame. And as they were telling them about how they were stuck at customs, some people were being taken to that room. Some people were being taken to the other room. They were panicked. They were nervous. They were college kids. They didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, just as quickly as this thing started unraveling, it started to get unstuck. And they were somehow miraculously just kind of dropped and left alone. And then they were able to just move freely on. 
And then that's when this person started hearing that one and that one and that one say, no way. Like a few days ago, in the middle of the night, I woke up and started praying. They said, no way. I woke up and I started praying for you guys. No way. I started waking up and praying for you guys. And that's never happened to me. And maybe that's never happened to you. And I've never known anyone else to just walk out of jail. But there's something when God's people pray, standing alongside our persecuted, sick, and struggling friends, or those who are stuck and need help, that if we were to be more attentive, we can intercede and act for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. Who do you need to stand alongside this week before the face of God? What nudge in the middle of the night or the middle of the day do you need to not explain away? Well, just try it this week. Lean into it. When you think of a person, pray for a person. When you think of a person, pray for the person. And what wilderness are you needing to be led through? Ask God for one step and see what he might do when we pray together. Father, we're grateful for this time that you've given us this day, and we do thank you for all it took to get each one of us here today. We thank you for your presence among us, in us, and working through us. We ask that you would bless those who are in need of a special touch, and we ask, God, that you would heal those who are suffering and struggling, and we pray that in the name of Jesus. We ask for those who feel stuck in a situation or in a relationship. We ask for your grace and mercy to come alongside them and lead them. Lord, would you impress upon us any next steps you would have for us that we might be your people this week. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Remember the good news that we have received and proclaimed this day the good news in which we stand and through which we are being saved. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said he would. But the story doesn't end in death. Christ was raised on the third day, just as it was promised. We are witnesses to this good news, and God commands that we do not keep this news to ourselves. May we declare and demonstrate to all that Christ is Lord. He has liberated us from the bondage of sin, death, and evil so that we might live freely, justly, and compassionately. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Alleluia and go in peace.